Hello, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Anna Loder from readabook.com.au. I'm a lifelong reader and book lover and a long-time book club member. 15 years, I can't believe it. I've been a bookseller for 13 and now I'm a reviewer and blogger. This is a weekly podcast celebrating that love of books and reading. I'm so excited to be in your ears today. Before we get started, can I quickly pay my respects to the Dharawal people of the Uyora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which I work, play, read and live on. Along with the traditional owners of the lands throughout Australia, I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Let's get started. Okay, this is just a conversation that I got to have recently with author Paul Delgano about his new novel, A Country of Eternal Light, which I absolutely loved. I think Wayne Marshall said that it was wildly inventive and bursting with heart, and OMG, if that's not an understatement. Oh, I just loved this novel. Thank you very much to HarperCollins for giving me the opportunity to read an advanced copy of it. Thank you very much for the chat, Mr. Paul. Like nothing I've read before. Thank you so uh, good. much. I uh, didn't realise that uh, you were Scottish. I am, yeah, from Aberdeen, much like Margaret and her family. Ah, lovely. <laughs> That's yeah. so funny. I was just about to say, I know a friend who lives there, and it's Margaret. She's my friend now. <laughs> yeah, all right, okay, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you've read, there's a book called Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by mm-hmm. a Scottish writer called uh, Gail Honeyman, which I had exactly the same feeling after finishing that. It's like, what, what's she doing now? You know, you're kind of, for any good book, you're kind of looking behind the book, like, where, where is this person that was, was real? Real not five seconds ago. It's a funny sensation, isn't it? It's incredible. Thank you so much for talking with me this afternoon. I oh. can't appreciate it any more than I do. Well, I can't believe it. I loved the book. It was fantastic. Oh, that's so great to hear. I've not actually talked to that many people about it outside of the publisher, obviously. So that's that's really wonderful to hear, Anna. Thank you. Oh, how are you feeling? It's such a strange thing that this is my third book now. And mm. um, you're kind of trying to brace yourself for everything. One being that people might pay attention to it. But the, the one that you've almost got to brace yourself for more is that nobody will really pay attention to it. And that's the, the weirdest feeling. So you, you find yourself in a bit of a Schrodinger's kind of situation where it's like, I'm all hyped up here for this big thing. I mean, big in my life in the context of what I'm doing. And then it can be just confronting that not that many people percentage-wise actually read books. Among those, not that many probably read Australian fiction, like contemporary Australian fiction. And among those, even fewer are going to pick your book out of contemporary Australian fiction. So I, I imagine it would have been difficult back in the day when you had five middle-aged white guys writing books and everyone had to buy them. So, you know, Tolstoy or James Joyce would have probably been thinking, that's that's me sorted for the next few years. But I think the context is so different now that you, you kind of hope it will travel well, but you don't know if it will or if it won't. It must be incredible to have to gear yourself up for both. I mean, you just you don't know how it's going to be received. I know that the reviews that I saw on Goodreads were very favourable and everybody I know is going to love it, but you don't know it. Yeah. And, and I of know course, I loved it. I, I mean, it's been published in the UK, thankfully, mm. and just this morning, I've been going through the, the second proof pages. There are some changes around spelling and different conventions and things for the UK edition. And it's only in doing that, really, that I'm becoming acquainted with the story again, because, of course, the reality of publishing is it's, it's a bit like when we look at the stars and we think, oh, so so bright tonight. you know. But this is something from long ago that's no longer happening from the point of view of the writer. So it's like a really delayed punchline. You've told a joke maybe two years ago or three years ago, and now, uh, with any luck, people are laughing or crying or whatever the desired result is. <laughs> laughing, but, um, crying, right there beside Margaret. This is a gorgeous, gorgeous story. 
It's oh, so lovely. You. Thank you. Thanks. But it must be surreal, I think. It's true. By the time it comes to publication, I guess you've read it 50 times, haven't you? Yeah, that's quite a different thing too. I've never actually spoken to other writers about this, but I love reading. I mean, my, my first love is reading. And what I particularly love is the feeling within, usually within a page, you, you know whether you're in safe hands or not in safe hands in terms of the writer. You're kind of strapped in. You, you have a feeling that they have done the safety protocols and the roller coaster is not going to go flying off mm-hmm. the rails. You're along for the ride. So as a writer, I love that letting go and allowing myself to be swept up in the story. But of course, as the writer, you know, as I said, looking at these proofs this morning, you just are questioning everything in a way you wouldn't with someone else's writing. So I never read something that I love and think, why did they choose that adjective? Or they should have indented that paragraph differently. (laughs) But because of all of that, you end up in a strange situation, or I do, where you're right. I mean, I've gone through, on some level, I've read the book 50 times, probably, as you say, but... On another level, I've never actually read it and never actually will. Like, I, I won't be able to actually sit back and give myself to it. Yeah. So it's, it's a strange kind of having to be completely across it, but also having a sense that you haven't read it. I do know as a reader how different it is reading it twice versus reading it the first time. And, you know, you're always mm. envious of the people who haven't found that book yet. And, oh, I feel exactly mm. the same way about A Country of Eternal Light. I just This is a beautiful read. I love it. How did you even get the idea for it? Thanks, Anna. So there are a few different things that happened. So the the kind of fossils, if you like, or the first part of this book were written in 2014. And then it was really on and off, like just bits and pieces or, or bits of the writing that are in it now were written then. The actual concept wasn't the same concept. And really, I was quite confused for years as to how I could possibly do a, a voice of a, a middle-aged Aberdonian woman and make it convincing for it to feel grounded emotionally to me so that it, it's not a not a work of caricature, but a work that's actually resonant. And so that was kind of all going on in the background. And then I completely stopped writing it or thinking about it because I had another idea for a novel, which I wrote, which was published in 2020. So all of that happened. Which is so then, different to this one. Oh, I could not believe I've read Polly, but completely different. Didn't even recognize your name when I got the copy of this baby. They're such different books. <laughs> yeah, I think you're absolutely right with that. They're very different. And of course, you get that funny thing when you write a book and people like it and they say, I can't wait to see what they do next. It's a very different thing I've done next. But what kind of essentially, I came back to this book in a couple of different stints. So once was NaNoWriMo in 2020. Uh, so I wrote for a month and tried to, at that stage, it featured triplets instead of twins, which it features now. My aunties growing up were triplets. So that, that was oh, wow. kind of always on my mind. And then in 2021, like lots of people who worked in any way in the university sector, my job was made redundant. Mm-hmm. And at that point, like I knew it was going to be made redundant. I knew four months ahead that it was get a letter saying, you're at risk of redundancy, etc. And as the weeks passed, I suddenly realized I really wanted the redundancy. So there were even little notifications passing around internally of there's this job you could go for, for, for all the people affected. And I realized, even though I hadn't been at the university for very long, I'd been at it for five years, so I'm not, not like a lifer. 
I realized that I'd get a bit of money. And for the first time in my life, I'd actually have a chance to write consistently. I gave myself basically three months that I thought what I can do is like five days a week, six days a week, but this will be my full-time job. Mm-hmm. And I've never had that luxury. The, the longest I've ever had is a, a week at a goal where I can write something. So the reality for me in any previous books or anything I'm writing is wake up at five in the morning try and write, feel really kind of frazzled and miserable, realizing I haven't done that much and I've got to start my whole day. And then as the day goes on, you're just getting further and further behind as the day progresses. Exactly. Which works in the sense. Yeah. I mean, kind of think if you want to do it, you'll do it. So it is possible and it has its own benefits in a way. So usually for me, it would be cycling to work or getting a sandwich at lunchtime. I'd have all these insights about the story that I'd return to the next morning while I was exhausted and half asleep. But with this kind of three month period, what I had for the first time was an opportunity to absolutely get immersed in the story. And so the whole book as it appears now, the whole feel and vibe and scope and everything all happened in those three months. So there's all these bits that have happened over the years mm-hmm. but the all of yeah, the, the main concepts that's been written in three months no definitely not but as i've said to some people in a way i didn't discuss it with anybody while i was writing even my partner i mean i kind of maybe mentioned a couple of things nobody was reading it i'm not part mm-hmm. of a writer's group or anything so it was completely like being in a dream for those three months. And this was during the, you know, the tail end of Melbourne's longest in the world lockdowns. Yeah. So I was stuck at home anyway. And yeah. because I knew this was a really rare opportunity and I needed to get another job after the three months, I got up every day and was very excited and charged up to write. And I did like eight hours, nine hours a day straight. There was never a time when I thought, uh, you know, I'll go for a walk in the park today for my, you know, allotted 10 minutes exercise or whatever we were allowed. I just was at the desk writing, n- not begrudging in any way, yeah. but a whole mixture of things. One being a, a kind of certain state of despair about the world or kind of worry about everything that was going on, people's health, my health, my kids' health, the world, the fact I didn't have a job. At that point, I didn't have a publisher. So I guess what I'm saying is I was writing from completely a sense of, failure and nothing to lose but I wasn't writing in despair I was very happy doing the writing and didn't want to break that spell of the dream so for those three months I'd kind of other than my kids and my partner my contact in the day was with Margaret and Henry and William and Ewan when I woke up and had a shower they were the people I was thinking about their problems were my problems so it was an extremely immersive period of writing which I really value really loved every second of it and that's why it's the book it is now I think wow yeah, I'm not surprised. It definitely has that dreamlike quality to it. Meandering along, finding out more, just along for the ride. Absolutely. Yeah, I think what a gift. That's incredible. So three months, really, nobody had contact with anybody. So it was all so yeah. immersive and you just, what a great use of right. the lockdown. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about was how bone tired Margaret was, which you've already alluded to. This is a a life weary person who's just been watching and watching and watching and she's Mm. just so tired. I think does tie into the whole lockdown there. Uh, Yeah. And and, and as you kind of alluded to there, Anna, it's very different from the last book. And I I kind of think one of the things that's different, like I, I don't think I was consciously writing from my head more previously, but what I really wanted to do with this one was just write intuitively and as much as possible from the heart. Mm-hmm. So I kind of felt the craft was up to a certain level. But yeah, for all the very convoluted answer I just gave before, yeah. uh, I wanted to write something that felt 
honest emotionally and had heart and was as much a consideration of love and family love as as any other thing. Really at the crux of it is what's important to a person's life and that's family and friendship too. But more, I think she goes throughout, you know, measuring how her legs look and her outfits and her hair and all that. But really she's just laughing at herself and the thing that remains is the love that she has for her daughters. And it does sound tacky and, man, it's just, it's so beautiful. It's such a gorgeous, what a special read, what a special gift to have given readers i just i loved it thank you it's funny too though isn't it i mean those things are tacky that's the that's the strange reality you know the reason hallmark cards do very well is because they're they're tugging on those heartstrings so while of course we look at a card with two teddy bears passing a love heart to each other and think that's so kind of naff or or Mm -hmm. tacky there's something in that that uh, actually we do all have that sentiment and in the context of our everyday families and and loves and life it's not uh, necessarily on a grand Shakespearean scale it's it's the small things the things that you don't necessarily think are are going to be um, huge abiding memories become the abiding memories just through the process of having shared a life together. Yeah, exactly. As tacky as it sounds like the small stuff becomes the, the big stuff. But you've just you've captured that so much more beautifully than what I would ever be able to describe. Just beautiful. Just it captured it perfectly. So you've got Frankenstein all the way through, which I've now very much again added to my list. That's probably been on my to be read file for about twenty years. <laughs> what have I missed? What well, one of the things I've always I say always, I, I don't think I read Frankenstein until I was in my early thirties. I knew it through pop culture and films I guess I must have seen at some point with Frankenstein or cartoons or the Count and Dracula as as Margaret mentions at one point and one of the things I really like about the book when I did read it or, or rather I'm really curious about is to me there's a question of did any of this really happen so there's the strange potential sleight of hand that's happening that even the author herself didn't seem to acknowledge, as is referenced in this book in the 1831 edition of the book, which came out, you know, nearly 20 years after the first one. Mary Shelley talks in very concrete terms about there was a monster and there was a Frankenstein who who created the monster. But I think there's definitely another way of reading it that is that, you know, every time Victor Frankenstein turns up somewhere where a murder has just occurred by the monster he created, the monster is nowhere to be seen. So he's apparently been there. So he's following the monster around. He gets to a location often by completely illogical means. And when he gets there, it's like, oh, my God, there's just been a murder and we don't know who did it. And he's like, wow, now, just as I've arrived, there's been a murder. And the whole period through investigating the source of life and trying to recreate life and the spark of being, we're constantly getting these references to the fact that... (laughs) We're constantly getting these references to the fact that he's of a very nervous disposition, he's exhausted, he's at the point of burnout, he's essentially losing his mind. So you've got all of that, plus you've got electricity and the spark of life. And and one of the characters in the book, Margaret's husband, Henry, gets ECT, so electric convulsive therapy, in order to try and revive him, I guess. But then also in Frankenstein, the novel, which you never really see in the films, that the whole thing's done by a framing narrator. So it's all coming through letters from a man called Robert Walton to his sister, Margaret, incidentally, who lives in England. So he's reporting everything that's happened that has been told to him by Victor Frankenstein, who miraculously and implausibly has washed up alongside his ship in the middle of an ice storm in the far north. 
And so for me, I know in that period, this idea of the epistolary novel where everything's done through letters Mm -hmm. is that was the way things were done for whatever reason, which to to a modern reader feels like, why are you taking us away from the attention? Why don't you put us right in the scene? Why is it somebody telling us what happened? But in the case of Frankenstein, you've got the situation where Frankenstein's monster is telling a story about other people doing something. He's telling that story to Victor Frankenstein, who then is apparently telling that story to Robert Walton, who again is then telling that story to Margaret Seville, his sister. So, Apart from anything else, I really love this idea of just the unreliability of it all, whether or not that's what Mary Shelley intended. That just adds a whole extra dimension. Oh, my goodness. As you'll see, I'm sure when you read it, one of the really curious things about that novel is there's so many kind of errors in it, so many things that are completely illogical that you just think any modern editor would just whip them out. So one that's referenced in the novel is that... The monster leaves from Orkney, which is off the north coast of Scotland. The monster leaves and he goes to Ireland, which is, I don't know, 500 miles away. And then Victor goes to sleep in a boat in a, in a little lake, basically, beside Orkney. And when he wakes up, he's somehow travelled all the way to Ireland, 500 kilometres away, round a very treacherous coast, stormy seas, etc. So that's just one example of how completely bonkers the plot is and how it makes no sense. And that, for me, as well, is a really interesting question of still... Regardless of all of that, this has endured an archetypical story that is saying something to us and it's saying it on a dream level. You could pick it apart. The, the writing's not particularly compelling a lot of the times, largely, I think, because Percy Shelley overwrote like a lot of what Mary Shelley wrote and made it more poetic than it had been and poetic in a way that doesn't chime as well, I think, with modern readers. You know, you can get an edition of Frankenstein that's the original manuscript, and it's a lot more colloquial and uh, readable, even though it's only in little chunks. The fact that that story has endured despite all of its otherwise obvious flaws, I think, is a really interesting question, too. Well, it just adds a whole extra dimension to a country of eternal light then, doesn't it? That's fantastic. Oh, if you had have read that, there's a whole extra dimension in there that just completely went over my head and I knew I was missing it. But no, I couldn't have loved it more. So I guess. I, I don't think you necessarily need to have read it. I, well, I, mean, I couldn't so have many... loved the book more. So oh. it doesn't detract from it. But what an extra dimension I was missing out on. <laughs> the book as well my partner is a bagpiper and you've got the bagpipe songs all the way through that's okay, interesting I've, never, I've um, never seen any other book reference i mean t- tell me about your partner why do they oh he uh, plays why do they play? thistles? he picked it up when he finished his mba he went on to ebay to buy golf clubs and he has said bagpipes instead he did go to scott's wow. for part of his high school but but he's just a big bagpipe fan. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, as a Scottish person, I mean, the bagpipes are kind of the national instrument, I guess. There are two different sides to it, I think. One is the mass pipes and drums, which I'm not really sure about the Sydney thistles, but might be similar to that, yeah, where you have yeah, a yeah. number of drummers. Yeah. And when you see them at something like the Highland Games, it's, it's quite overwhelming. The, the ground's literally shaking because yeah, of that noise. and. Billy Connolly used to have quite a good joke about how it would blow your mind if the Scottish army was coming towards you and you'd never heard the bagpipes and suddenly, you know, you're hiding behind a rock somewhere and suddenly there's this almighty screeching and thumping going on. So, so there's that side, but also the Lone Piper, I think, is yeah, certainly for favorite. me a very sentimental and yeah. poignant thing. So that the idea being, I think traditionally, that 
following a battle, a lawn piper would walk among all the dead bodies, essentially playing a dirge of some sort, while people were counted and wounded people were picked up and bits of wounded people probably were picked up as well. So there's that, but translated in modern days to things like at the Edinburgh Tattoo, it, it will usually finish with this spotlight on a single piper walking along the ramparts yeah. of Edinburgh Castle, playing some of the kind of tunes you allude to, like the Skyboat song, etc. Yeah, so, sure. yeah, Beautiful. I really appreciate it. I don't think I've ever seen the bagpipe speeches so heavy <laughs> in a novel before. It was great. It is wildly inventive. I have never read anything like it before. I keep saying that to people who I think will be buying it, how it gives you the time traveler's wife feels. But mm. like, really, I haven't ever read anything like it. Is there a whole genre here that I'm missing out on? Or is this just like nothing you've ever read before? Somebody actually asked me about this yesterday because they said they thought it was kind of magical realist. And I've read a lot of magical realism just in the past. And I kind of don't think it is magical realist. So in magical realism, as you know, kind of things define the laws of physics. So Yeah, I um, read magical realism. I wouldn't have classed right. it as magical realism at all. Yeah. So it doesn't the, the, have that feel. Where I would put it is more in the realm of magical thinking, as in The Year of Magical Thinking by John Didion. This kind of idea of grief and how grief actually works. And time isn't linear anymore. And things kind of get a bit twisted and muddied and strange in ways that, you know, Margaret, as as she points out numerous times, isn't particularly religious. She doesn't believe in souls. Mm -hmm. She's not kind of walking around reflecting on the fact she's a ghost. She doesn't even mention that she is a ghost. No, she doesn't. Or or where she is, that afterlife might look like or whatever. So I think she's just a bit perturbed by what's going on. And I I think the kind of way of laying out the dates and all different parts and all the rest of it is part of that idea for me, at least, of how grief worked. It just doesn't work in a linear way. So yeah, I I can't think of a book that uh, it's certainly not a genre, as you say, that it sits into, but it just, uh, again, on a very intuitive level, felt like the way that this this particular one should be done. Yeah. Oh, no, you've done a beautiful job. Just beautiful. I'm just really delighted with your interest in the book, Anna. So, um, <laughs> oh, I feel I, so stupid beyond saying, oh, my goodness, it's just such a beautiful read. But it's just, it's such a difficult book to be talking about as well, because it does, you know, like soul to soul, it does sound tacky when you say it's all about a mother's love for her daughters. Mm-hmm. And it's looking back over her life and... It very much is just such a beautiful, real read. I just, I loved it. Thank you. Thanks. You know, I listened to an interview with Scottish writer called David Keenan fairly recently, and I hadn't read the book he was talking about, but when he was asked what his book was about, he said, it's about the experience of reading the book, which really struck with me. So I, I sympathize, I guess, with what you're saying, that Quite often, we we all want to be able to pass on the information. So this is a book of a man who falls into a hole and has to climb back out again. Yeah. But certainly most of my favorite reading experiences, they transcend that because it's a bad feeling, which again gets back to that dream state. So you, you wake up from a dream and it's been the most moving thing you've ever experienced. And then you try and explain that, oh, my kids were there, but they were really oranges. 
and uh, I peeled them and ate them or whatever. They're the kind of weird, it doesn't make any sense. It loses, once you're fully awake, it loses it. Yeah. But you can be doing any touring? I am actually coming to Sydney on either the 16th or the 17th of February. So to Better Red Than Dead. Oh, excellent. Um, Yeah. And that's with, thankfully for me, with Fiona McGregor, who's just done Iris, the book. Yes. uh, yes, she'll, She'll be interviewing me. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, it would be really <laughs> lovely to. Such a great spot. They do such a great interviews and such good, yeah, great. Oh, it would be awesome if you could make fun. it. I'd love to say hello <laughs> and thank you and everything. Like that. I'll try and better articulate how much this book really means. I think beautiful and transcends. Just loved it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, yeah, very <laughs> glad that's the case, Anna. Thanks. Well, okay, I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much. Congratulations. It's lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so that's it for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Please leave a review wherever you can, but especially where you found my Readable podcast. If you'd like more connection, please head on over to thereadable.com.au. There's plenty of book reviews and recommendations there, and that's also where you'll find my blog. And I would love, love, love to welcome you into our community. There's a membership page on readabook.com.au. There are three levels. The first is free. And I'm so hoping that you would like to help me build my online community where we can enjoy reading more together. Thank you.